Greetings there, S.E. Land. This is Twig, Anthony Twig Wheeler, here with another episode of Twig's S.E. Reflections podcast. This is an audio archive created specifically for S.E. students and practitioners everywhere, folks that have been studying the psychobiological literature and somatic healing arts, clinicians out there working with people in distress, but to apply the somatic literature to their work. Here I am. I'm an advocate and an, ah, well... I'm just I'm just a big I'm just a big darn enthusiast of this thing. That's what else can I say? So then, hey, my name's Twig and I am I, I am talking to you here episode 90 of a project that has been in the works for years. Oh my goodness, 5 plus years and been being published on a regular basis for over a year and a half. We're at episode 90 set this up to go to 100. We are making movements toward completion. Let me tell you, last week, I got rocked and rolled and just, oh, it was great. I got bumbled up. It was fantastic. I was working on an episode, the original episode 90, which a few of you know about. It was going to be on children and the polyvagal theory. And I had a hard time. I had a good time. I had a hard time. I had all kinds of ups and downs. It took my entire weekend and then consumed my week afterwards. I got pretty tongue-tied. And so I'm giving that a break. I'm giving that a break because it's a potent topic. At least it it became that way when I went at it. I don't know if it's got to be or if it should be or what, but it was when I went toward it. And so I want to come back to that, but I want to keep this project moving forward because, like I say, we're at episode 90, and I'm moving this toward 100. To keep it moving forward, as I like to say, I am stepping back for a moment from kind of the effort or the obligation that I set up for myself with naming episode 90 as about children and the polyvagal theory. I will come back to that. Instead, I'm going to come in and and I hope make this a little bit easier on myself so I can get the momentum back up, so I can not lose another week of, of sharing these thoughts with you and helping this project move forward. So my easy episode here is, is one that's been on the, on the planning for some time. And it is, it's on Comedy improv games for the SE practitioner. Somebody like yourself, here are some games that I went off into the world of comedy improv theater for a little while for good, lots of good reasons that I went in there. And one of the things I did was I collected a bunch of games that I could easily see, or maybe I put some work into it, but I could see the relationship between different things inside of the game and different moments inside of sessions, either based on communication principles or feeling states or feeling tones or requests for spontaneity or open-mindedness or allowance for you to pay attention and see what your fellow in our case with our sessions, it's our client. In the case of 
players on stage, it's our fellow player. Like, what's their intention and attention all about? What's happening here and how can we join with that and help it move forward, get momentum? Which, in terms of our SE work, we're looking to be able to have that momentum so we can steer it toward a more helpful and, you know, healthful direction. If we just let people's attention go wherever it wants to go, we're likely to help it um, just reinforce the same negative patterns that it's already been reinforcing. And part of our job is to help that pendulum swing. That's all good, especially if we can get the momentum up. So I, I went in to this field, comedy improv theater, and I studied the kind of the initial levels of it in Seattle, Washington, several years back. And I pulled out from there a couple dozen games, really. And I've talked about them a bit on the podcast at other times, uh, particularly like mouth movements and making sure that you kind of recognize your mouth as a motor system, as a physical part of your physicality, not just your thoughts as your words, but your motor system as, as part and parcel for you to be able to convey your words to your clients, to be able to communicate. Of course, so much of our communication comes from our body and our expression and our tone of voice and all of the other cues of our instrument. And voice, the movement of our mouth, the movement of the the structure of our mouth, you know, like the movement of our mouth makes it so that we can convey more and express more or less when that needs to happen and be more ready to express what we need to in a spontaneous way that sometimes comes forward in our sessions. That's out there. That's in the podcast, Mouth Movements, episode 23. It's in the archives, and you can find those archives. Any of you can always find those archives as long as I can afford to keep them there at liberationispossible.org backslash reflections. That's where they're at. Okay, so there out of this came a workshop that I did for years. It was great. It was my funnest workshop that I did out there with the SE world, and that was called Practicing Our Lines. It was a two-day thing where people would come and trust me with their time and attention. I was always so grateful for that. And I would share these games that I had picked up in the comedy improv world and then do these little tweaks on them to help point out some relevant part of an SE session or an SE learning principle or an SE practical principle or use principle. And we just had this really awesome weekend playing these games, because they're very fun, lively kinds of things, getting to engage the information in a kind of enjoyable, fun kind of way, and find something new every single time, improvisationally, just like, oh, wow, there's another group of connections that can be made around things as genuinely connected as trauma healing and spontaneous improvisational play, you know, because of course, at that deeper, stronger, more troubled end of the trauma spectrum, you know, the lower end of the resiliency spectrum where a person's nervous system, I mean, if we take it down to this very basic mechanistic level, but it, it can be go there. And because it can go there, it's, it's a pretty sharp edge of Occam's razor to see that the autonomic nervous system can simply be burdened 
by a tremendous amount of dysregulation or disorganization or disharmony in its signaling and its firing, its communication of what the body is supposed to be doing right now. Should it be fighting or fleeing or freezing or at ease and self-organizing and orienting? Should the organs of the body be more or less at rest or should they be actively engaged in order to accomplish some kind of self-protective response? And the accumulated stress or burden on the nervous system that causes various different signals, somatic reiterated cues of of distress coming through the either visceral state or the mental state or environmental cues that have been set up inside of this wacky environment that has been allowed to continue, et cetera, et cetera. All kinds of reasons that these cues could come up repeatedly, but the more they come up, the less curious you get, the less spontaneous you get, the more and more repetitive things are, the more and more entrenched things are, the more and more they feel the same, the less likely at that far end of the trauma spectrum you are to like want to do novel stuff. You know, the, the, the enclosed encapsulated image of that state is pretty accurate because of the nervous system state behind it the freeze immobility response mediated by the dorsal vagal complex, trying to shut the organism down, trying to limit novelty, trying to limit exposure to newness, trying to limit the amount of adaptation necessary to take on new encounters. Freeze, immobility at that lower end of the trauma spectrum. Who, you know, it kind of it's the opposite side of not 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 that everybody who is in comedy improv theater is super like lively and engaged and everything. There's an incredible amount of wit to be found in a in a different kind of paced person, and yet there is this notion that the more the nervous system is open to things, the more spontaneous it can be, and the more appropriate or non-contrived it can be in relationship to new stimulus, which just happens to be the same kinds of qualities that are being looked for, being cultivated in comedy improv theater. So there's this like interesting connection that I think, well, it held my attention for several years and we were, I thought we were getting to play with that somewhat in this workshop, practicing our lines that went on for, I guess I did that I think I did that 12 times in the United States and then a couple times out of the U.S., like Brazil, Japan, Australia had a version of it, very close version of it, and it was wonderful. I hope that I get to do it again. I'm not certain that it's going to happen again. I've, I've kind of seen that it, it's a super cool class that I can't promote well enough to make it as cool as it is. Like whenever it's been done out of the U.S., it's had local folks that were really into making it happen. And so it had like 40 people, you know, 50 people in Japan. That, 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 fe- that feels good when it happens like that. And it feels really good to get to do these games with people here in the States. But it's kind of hard because sometimes it it doesn't really pay for itself for me to travel for this and everything. So I've, I've kind of said, okay, 
I'm not going to I'm not going to self promote this class anymore. I'm going to put that down. If I get another invitation, I'm totally happy to come out and make make all of these connections and fun times happen. In the meantime, I could see how this little thing that I collected could go away. And I don't want that. I don't want that at all. I didn't collect these games. Um, I, I kind of, for this reason, I collected them for us. So I want to share them here. Not all of them, not the whole, whole program. That would, that would be kind of crazy. But I think I can get at eight of the major ones. And so I'd like to share them with you here. Here we are, episode 90, Twig's SE Reflections. These are eight comedy improv games, and at least some of the adaptations and rationale for how they could be studied or applied or gamed with, played with for SE practitioners, and you can use these yourself. As far as I'm concerned, you could probably just listen to this and then go play it with somebody. That's my hope, more or less, okay? Off we go. Okay, before explaining these, I think I should claim or name something about my understanding of comedy improv theater. And that is that it's an intellectual tradition that is based more or less on a open source code or a creative commons understanding of the various different games and techniques and teaching elements and ideas that support practitioners or players of comedy improv. It's it's a really open-minded community of people that are trying to be open-minded. And while I suspect that there's probably some proprietary knowledge somewhere in it, I'm not, I'm not familiar with that. And I don't know where that is. Like most of what I've been taught and what I've seen is taught and something that I could see in lots of other places in lots of different ways because it's a kind, but, but all related and associated and nobody, nobody claiming whose it is, you know, although whenever, whenever possible, it's part of the responsibility for us to give recognition to the people who create ideas and such. There isn't inside of comedy improv theater, something that, tends to happen in some fields where there's a kind of a walling off of the technique in order to kind of support a, a claim to its intellectual property. And with that, I think I can share these games with you because like, you know, you can just, you could go to any comedy improv group or class or anything and hear and see these same games and you can pick up most of the main books and see the same things, and you can get on YouTube and see the same things. So here I am, just a person giving you a commentary on some adaptations of these same things. And I should also name that this is a long episode. This is like an hour and 45 minutes. Fortunately, it's all broken up into these different games, so you can like take it on 15 minutes at a time or something, but it's long. Okay, here we go. Now, the way that I would always open practicing our lines, and it's actually how I try to open most of my other classes or other activities with groups, is by using Comedy Improv Theater's kind of group opener called a word ball or a name ball. And I would usually do this in sequence. I, I backed, I changed, 
a few times which one I thought should go first, word ball or name ball. But I'll, I'll go ahead and name them out here and then tell you why I changed back and forth. So with name ball, you know, let me start with word ball. <laughs> That's why it's part of the, the reason I like it. It's, a, it's got a nice opener. With word ball, the idea is that you, you get the group in a circle. could be any small number from four people to 20 or 50 people. But at about 20 people, it's nice to have bigger it's nice to have two groups of 12 rather than a group of 24 and then so on up to about 20 people. Okay. You get it. So you got this group of people and and you step out as the leader of the game, starter of the game. You say, okay, now there's an imaginary ball in my hands and I'm going to toss this ball to somebody in the group. And as I toss the ball, I'm going to say a word. It's going to be the first word that comes to my mind. It doesn't have to be a special word or a meaningful word in any kind of way, just the first word that comes to my mind. And the person catching the ball is then something like a hot potato in a fast kind of way, going to turn around and throw the ball, toss the ball to somebody else. And as they toss the ball, they're going to say the first word that comes to their mind, so you catch the ball and you turn around and you just say the, ne- the word that comes to your mind. So you hear a word as they're catching the ball, you toss the, toss the ball and you say a new word. The ball goes around the group, popping these new words off, not trying to make a sentence, not trying to fix the last word, not trying to create any kind of meaning per se, trying instead to allow the first word that comes to your mind to be what moves through and out to being said so that there's there's less and less inhibition, less and less hesitation and the allowance for the first word to come to your mind to be able to be spoken. That's the game. Just to hear the word, catch the ball, throw the ball, say the new word, have the ball go around, and to do that kind of pacing it out at the group's rhythm. Now, the first round is usually just like whatever the group finds their own rhythm to be. And the nice thing to do is to see it start to establish its rhythm and success where people are getting the game and they've gotten the rhythm of the game and the game that they've created now has a rhythm. And now as the kind of leader or facilitator, again, to step back out and grab the ball at some point, you can do that as you know with as much pizzazz or subtlety as you like, whatever, but you get back control of the word ball. And now there are different titrations to the game that can be made. You can have the group use the same word ball and go faster. So you can pick up the pace. You can split the word ball in two. So now you're going to throw two words out into the group, tomato, skyline, and these words go around. Banana, treehouse, on and on and on and on. And two words are going around and now the group has the responsibility, each individual in the group, to watch who has got the balls and where are they going to and is it coming to me? And most importantly, if I throw it to somebody, do they catch it? Before I release my attention out into the whatever's going on, I want to be able to make sure that if I throw it to somebody, they have caught it. So the two balls go around and then eventually with success, you know, and you get the rhythm of it and it really feels good, you can pull these two balls together again. Poop, 
right? The facilitator can get hold of both of those. If one of them gets dropped and you only get one ball back, then, you know, there's a, there's a kind of a, a thing. Now, there's a feeling right there. At first, if the group increases the challenge, sends two balls out, it's a bit of a hesitation for a moment, but then they realize they can do it. If they bring two back, there's a real feeling of success with that. If, however, one of the balls gets dropped, there's this feeling like, oh, that's not exactly what we were after. And so here's part of the, the setup of these games. At all points inside of this, we're trying to maximize success and the feeling of success. And we're trying to minimize the feeling of worry about failure. We're trying to just get away from, oh, failure is something that happens and que beleza, that's, that's cool. It's totally you know, <laughs> amazing. And who cares? Like, we're just going to let that go. So if we drop a ball, we're just letting it move forward, keeping things moving forward. And it's just a game with no edges to it. It's just like that falls off and we're looking for success. So we ask this question, I ask this question, where was the last place we had success? Okay, well, you know, if it was that we were able to do one word ball and it was going faster and as soon as we went over to two word balls we dropped one then we're going to go back to one where it was going faster we're going to get the fact that we have success in there again and then we're going to redo the titration up to the one that we dropped it once it's almost got the feeling like you know we're, we're not going to drop it if we go back and try from two again we don't have to go all the way back a full step where we were successful the last time but the idea in these increased titrations is that at each level of the game, we're going to go from one word ball going faster or faster around the group. We're going to split that in half, and now we're going to have two word balls, and they're going to go around, and then two word balls are going to go faster and faster, and now we're going to split it to three, and then we're going to have three going faster and faster. At each of these levels of titration, if it flounders, if it falls apart, we're just going to let that happen and gently back our way up to the last place that we felt the easier movement of success, and then we're going to move on. And this is just an opening game that starts really super slow with the first word that comes to your mind. No big deal, no rush, no, no pressure to it. And then we're just going to increase the rounds of it, the titrations of it. And as the group gets more and more into it and more and more movement and more and more engaged, we're just going to find the titrations that help keep that feeling of change happening. And this is like an opening of this class. Well, a secondary piece of this can be switching and finding another titration in using a slightly different, almost the same game called name ball. And the idea is this exact same. Okay, in this game, we're going we're gonna to do the same thing. We're going to be tossing this imaginary ball to one another. But what we're going to do this time is we're going to say the name of the person who we're throwing this ball to. We're going to say the name of the person we're throwing this ball to. So if we're, you know, throwing the ball over to Twig over there, we're going to like say Twig as we throw the ball. And as Twig catches the ball and he's going to throw it over to Madeline, he's going to say Madeline. And as Madeline catches the ball and she's going to throw it back to Twig maybe or on to Jessica, she's going to throw it on to Jessica, she's going to say Jessica. And as Jessica throws it over to Twig, Twig catches it and on and on. So we're going to 
throw this name ball around the group. Now, at any point, if you want to throw the name ball to somebody whose name you don't know, because we're in this game, we'll just make this allowance that, and everybody kind of go along with this unless you find you can't, but go along with it. Like, if you don't know the person's name, you just pause the game and you lean in a little bit and you say, excuse me, can you tell me your name again? Or can you tell me your name? I haven't heard your name yet. Yeah, that's one way to go. A beautiful place to get with this is where the name ball is going around the group with some speed and you're then able to regain the name ball. You get control of it again. You pause the group and then you ask, is there anybody in the group who feels like they can name everybody's name in the group? And okay, let me let me review this because this is a kind of an SE moment kind of thing. At the beginning, I actually asked that question, is there anybody in this group that can name everybody's name in this group? Now, if there is a coordinator there, um, of like a group, it's kind of interesting because sometimes they can name everybody's name, which is like super cool. You know, it's like hands out to the coordinators in the SE world and stuff because they end up like managing and going, getting to know a whole lot of people. <laughs> and you can see it right at this moment if you're in this kind of game because there might be the only people in the room who can name everybody's name. It's pretty impressive. But usually... Usually, no. At the beginning of a group, new workshop or something, you got a lot of people coming from lots of different places and not everybody knows each other. And so you ask that question and they say no. And now you introduce this name ball. Okay, we're going to do this thing. We're going to toss this imaginary ball to one another. It's got a name in it. We're going to say each other's names as we throw the ball around the circle. We're going to get that going faster and faster. Okay, we don't have to name that faster and faster until it starts to happen. Well, you pause well into the game, nice rhythm in the game, the names are flying. You pause and you say, does anybody feel like they can now name everybody, everybody's name in the group? And it is surprising. It is amazing and rewarding and so relieving. It's relieving that for the group oftentimes, because there will usually be two, three more people, depends on the group, depends on the size, who can do this. I usually, um, again, if it's 20 people, I'll try it. If it's 22 people, I'll start to split the group into two smaller groups. So name ball, what a way for people to learn everybody's name and for the teacher to give it a go. I try. I usually pull it off. Now, the best thing I can do about 10 minutes after we do the name ball is to come back to it somehow and just quickly run through it again about 10 minutes, 20 minutes later, that's ideal. Then it really solidifies just about everybody can hold on to each other's names just a bit more if we if we do that. Sometimes I say I'm going to do that and then I forget. It's it's embarrassing for me, but it's true. It happens. We make mistakes. Well, there's a little sequence, the word ball, the name ball. It's an icebreaker. It gets people motivated, gets people moving, gets people talking, which I'm hoping to get to happen because, of course, when you're asking questions, when you're engaging an audience, when you're in, in a group, it's it's great if people respond, if there's feedback, if there's back and forthness. And so starting off with a name ball and a word ball kind of pattern, it's it's a lovely way to get a group interacting 
get people talking, get people's names known, get the feeling of being included and known, having that start off from the start, it's a wonderful way to get out of having to go through the long explanation of who we are and where we come from and such. Not that there isn't value to that, there is, but sometimes it's kind of refreshing to get to know each other and play a little bit without having to go through the long self-explanations of who we are and where we come from. Not that we're not all interesting. So I do have a second game that I'd like to share with you here that I do in those workshops. This one is called 60 Second Stories. And the original comedy improv kind of game play with this that I know about is to you sit with a partner and you're given 60 seconds, the kind of facilitator is going to give you 60 seconds. As a group, everybody splits off into partners, dyads as we call them, and you meet up as a, as a couple for a moment and you're going to get one minute each, one minute to tell your life story from birth until now, everything that happened in between, the places you went, the people you met, the feelings you felt, the things you did, everything, your entire life story inside of 60 seconds from birth until now. That's the request. Now to do this, of course, you have to like really give it your all and step up to sharing who you are and where you come from, who your people are, what you've done, who you've been, all of this. It's, it's, it's high, in t- high energy to do that inside of a minute. And on the other side, on the listener side, it's a, it's a lot to listen to. Well, we, we increase the value intensity of the game by giving the listener a primary responsibility that in listening for 60 seconds to their partner's life story, when we return as a group, the listener is going to repeat the life history of their partner that they just heard inside of, and this is done in various different lengths of time, 30 seconds or 45 seconds or inside of a minute. I've seen it presented in different kinds of ways. What I tend to do is 45 seconds. But when I'm really playful or got a, a fun group, we'll do it inside of 30 seconds because that, that just increases the game part of it a little bit. Well, okay, what do you get here? You get this incredible swiftness of people explaining their life history and this listening. And then when you come back into a group, the person with a watch, in this case me, you know, like says, okay, you know, in 30 seconds or 45 seconds, tell us about your partner and your, you know, stand up one group at a time and share and this and this and this happened and she happened here and then she went there and she lived here and she did this and she went that and that's how she got you here. Pow. Oh, right. And you just, this game has this real quickness of moving forward and inside of a short period of time, I don't know, you know, we could do the math. You take a minute for one half of the dyads to speak you have a moment to switch that around and everybody shake that off and then you start the clock again and everybody talks feverishly going the other direction and then you come back into a group and now you're going to have each couple, each two people share the life histories of their friends, their newfound partners and life historians are going to like share the biography of who they just heard from inside of a minute and they're going to do it for 30 seconds and I don't know, you got a group of 20 people, you know, this is a 30-minute thing to do. But wow, I, I got to say, it's fun. 
it's a fun way to get a group of people who are going to spend more than a day together, more than a day together, in my opinion, more than a day together. It's a fun way to get people to know each other a little bit and get through some of the, I don't know, what is it? Um, the stuff. Let's call it the stuff. The stuff that comes up when we come into a group of people and we're in a you know professional or quasi-professional setting and um, we have to kind of explain who we are and where we come from and everything. I don't know what this one does. It It loosens it up. It's an old comedy improv kind of icebreaker, 60-second life stories, timed in half, 30-second life stories from your partner sharing to the group. Your stuff gets filtered in a fun kind of way, and it keeps things lively and moving forward. And, you know, 30 minutes for 20 people to introduce themselves, I think that's a pretty accurate thing. And some of you who do groups, you can think about that math and, I don't know, you try it out. It's something that's done. I've done it. And um, it's been fun. Now, in my SE adaptation of it, when I'm doing these workshops, the Practicing Our Lines, I always point out that at the end of these stories, how interesting everybody is. I always point that out. I'm like, you know, aren't we interesting? Like, if you really, if you really check it out, you know, just inside of 60 seconds, inside of 30 seconds... We can just really read the truth of how interesting people are, how interesting you are, how interesting I am, how interesting the people that we meet are. We don't always get to hear their life stories from birth until now. We don't always know who everybody is around us and what they're doing. We don't know everybody in that kind of way. We don't even ever get the 60-second download all the time. And yet, if you do that 60-second download, you you know, you find out people lived here and they lived there and they had these parents and that parents and, and they went here and they went there and they did this and they did that. And inside of 60 seconds, they tell you so much about their lives. And they're just so interesting. They're so, so interesting. People are so interesting. So I always point out that we're interesting. People say, yes. Oh, wow, that's totally true. That was a fun exercise. I say, yeah, it's totally fun exercise. And our clients are that interesting, too. You know, there's this kind of thing that can happen. I don't know where this comes from. I used to try to track it and everything. I'm, I'm just, I don't know. But there can be this thing that there is this aversion to the story and people's story. It strikes me as such an interesting thing because I remember so exquisitely listening to Peter Levine talk about the story and the value of the story. And he would say things like, you know, the coherent narrative has a fundamental place in trauma recovery. And, you know, he he developed all kinds of patterns that we can process story with, like the very well and well-appreciated and, and sometimes a little um, differently executed T-model or time series or time sequence or moving through the story in these kind of progressive phases from before, during, and after the kind of heighter climactic scene or most intense period of the event. Like there are all these kind of processing ways to negotiate storyline in SE sessions. There's all kinds of relationship to story through, you know, through and through. Now I know that we, we have all this other 
other stuff that we're interested in, and that sometimes the story can take away people's attention from being able to track felt sense experience in the moment as one example. And sometimes negotiating the different flow of where the client's attention is going or the draw of telling the story or something can be somehow confusing for practitioners to figure out how to relate to that and access these felt sense reflections as this example. Like, that can get complicated, I know, but but the whole, like, um, against the story or don't appreciate the story or um, that the story is in the way, I don't know. That's just weird. It's just so weird. I don't understand that. And at times, it's true. Like, the story inside of our sessions is... Um, Whoa, man, what a strange thing to have to negotiate. It's just a weird thing because it's so helpful and yet it's so harmful. And yet there are times when it's like totally vital. And then there are other times when, gosh, you just really wish, you just really wish that you could spend this session not telling the story again and doing something else. It goes all over the place and it can be refreshing to hear a person's life history inside of 60 seconds. So I play this game inside this workshop, practicing our lines of this comedy improv game, for a few different reasons. One, to help the group get together. Two, to help everybody feel like they're kind of known in the space. We want to be known. That's a good thing for us, not a contrivance of a facilitator. It's a true, true, true thing. You want to be known in a place so that you can feel more comfortable. So... This is a super great, I kind of consider it a practice of helping people get to know each other really quickly so that they can get some of that feeling of being known in this place. Take it for whatever that's worth. Next, there's a, there's a thing for practitioners that I'm trying to pull out here, which is that people are interesting and the story is interesting and it's true. We're trying to play with the story. So I make this playfulness out of getting to tell the entire story inside of 60 seconds, and yet it always remains a kind of tension. It always remains a kind of tension. Like, you're still in the dynamic, I hope. I would encourage us to be inside of the dynamic of how much story, how much present moment attention. I think that's a dance, not just an answer not just a position. And I think the playfulness of this 60-second life stories is, is one way to, that I've done that with this, this kind of stuff. So there you go. Here's another adapted game. In the comedy improv world, there's a lot of group warm-up activities that generally fit in the category of patterns, different pattern games. I do several of them in in the Practicing Our Lines class, but one I'll tell you about here is that I, I have two balls. Um, one's like a bean bag, one's a kush ball. Different soft items. I've used two different stuffed animals before. I could use two of those wire balls that are kind of easy to catch and easy to throw and soft when they hit people, kind of like a plastic wire cage. It could be anything that is throwable and easily catchable and that are separate or different from one another. They don't look alike. They have to stand out and be distinct, have some differentiation. And then what you do is you 
pull this group together, 12 people. It can be small as eight people. It loses its vitality below eight people. But above eight people can go up to 20, 30 people. It can be quite large. And what you do when you gather into this big circle is that you give a short series of instructions. Lend off like this. We're going to throw this ball around the room. It's going to go to each person one time. The task is to catch the ball when it is thrown to you and to throw it to somebody else who is going to catch it from you. And for you to remember who threw it to you and who you're throwing it to. Who threw it to you and who you're going to throw it to. So there's going to be a pattern established of people who are going to like receive it and throw it onto somebody else. And we're all going to remember who we caught it from and who we then threw it to. To let everybody know that you haven't caught it yet, we're going to start with our hands on our head. As you are thrown the ball and you've caught it and thrown it onto somebody else, you can leave your hand off your head and that will tell everybody else who's still establishing the new pattern that you've already received it, you don't need to catch it again. Lastly, I'll say that if you, if you throw this ball at somebody and it hits them, it's not their fault for not catching it or for getting hit by the ball. It's your fault for having thrown it because you're the primary mover. You're the one who threw it. So a task is to pay attention to whether or not the person that you're throwing it to is paying attention to you so that when you throw this, you know they're going to catch it rather than you hit them with it, them not ready or aware of your throwing it to stop it from hitting them, yeah? So be responsible. Don't hit people. Don't throw things at your clients that they can't catch. In this case, don't throw something at somebody when they're not ready for it, and we will remember who threw us the ball and who we threw the ball to. Here's the pattern. And then you throw off, you know, you're starting with it, I'm starting with it, and the facilitator starting with it, sends it off into the group, and the group, one person catches it, throws it onto somebody else, throws it on somebody else, who throws it on somebody else, who throws it on somebody else, until it comes back to the facilitator. Now, once the ball comes back around to the original facilitator, it's great if you just turn right back around and reestablish the same pattern by saying, okay, now just the same thing, exact same thing, you're going to catch it from the person who throws it to you, and you're going to just turn it around and throw it to the person who you threw it to the first time. So you're just kind of following through, the ball's just following through the same pattern, and you send it off into the group, and then, you know, we kind of sit back. And in my role as a facilitator, I'm just going to sit back and watch how well it does. This ball kind of like moves through the group, and sometimes it goes all the way through the group and comes back to the start starting point, and it's just a real solid feeling of success through the whole group. And you just feel it. It's like the whole group just like, yeah, that worked. Other times the ball goes out and it gets confused somewhere, you know, and that's sometimes depending on all kinds of circumstances, how well I introduced the game at the very beginning, how much confusion or coherence there was as we started creating the initial pattern, how or who is involved in the game, how many people are involved in the game. I would say that 
70% of the responsibility of the flow being successful moving through is whether or not the facilitation of the instructions at the beginning are truly clear and incorporated by everybody. And any kind of deviation of the pattern as it kind of starts off at this level is generally due to like initial conditions. So got to clean those up, you know, so that if it gets a little question marky, where does it go next? I hang back and watch the group try to work it out. And sometimes they work it out by themselves. Sometimes the frustration gets to a certain level where I then step in and offer usually two different levels of titration. One I first say, well, maybe we can work backward from the place that it was. If that hasn't already been tried, sometimes it's possible to work backwards. And sometimes I give that suggestion. Or two, if it hasn't already been suggested, I come up with, maybe we go back to the last place we knew it was successful, which usually is starting over again. Which if it gets to a level of needing to start all the way back at the very beginning again, and if it ends up requiring a real major step back, that also requires a general settling in the group before we just try to do it again. Then we get to watch this group thing get more and more differentiated, more and more complex. We get to increase the titrations with each round. So what we do, we get like one successful pattern going with the first ball. And once it can move around the group without any failure, with a, a nice steady stream, whatever the group's rhythm is, sometimes it's quite fast, sometimes it's just got a, a nice flow to it, but it's the ball's not getting lost and it's not missing track of who gets it when and it's contacting everybody and getting back to where it started. Once the first pattern's in place, I put down the first ball and then I pick up the second ball. And I play, I'll tell you here in the podcast, I play with different titrations of how I introduce this next piece. I could say, same rules, different pattern, new ball. And I throw a different color, different shape kind of object out, a different stuffed animal. You know, in my case, I throw out a cush ball. And hopefully in throwing it out with those words, same rules, different pattern, new ball. Hopefully with those words, throwing it out, people kind of like grab, you know, the person catches it and there's a kind of maybe just a momentary hesitation of people figuring out what's going on and they go back into establishing a new second pattern. Sometimes that's a little bit too cryptic and not enough information. So what I'm actually doing is starting the thing off from, from lack of success. And if I can kind of see that I need to give more information and I don't want that, that warble, as it used to be called in this world, that warble to happen, then I might come in and actually say like, okay, we're gonna do the same thing again. We're gonna start with our hands on our head, hands on our head. We're gonna make a new pattern. We're gonna make this a second pattern with this ball here this cush ball in my case, this cush ball, and it would do the exact same thing. Going to remember who you received it from and who you threw it to. And so I throw off the pattern and they create a second pattern. Perfect. There's like two different extremes to my language there. One where I reiterate the entire instruction set. One where I try to take a major step away from 
giving all the instructions, but just indicating the use of everything that's already known. So I say, same rules, different pattern, new ball. Or rule, 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 here's all the explanation. Yeah, that's important here. So then we get these two, two patterns going. We got the first one, the ball's on the side. We have the second pattern. We get to this feeling of success. We can throw the second ball around over and over again, and it can go fast. It can have its own rhythm. And then I come back to titrating it up again, increasing the request on the group again, and I get out the first ball and the second ball at the same time. And with a little bit of drama, I lean forward and I decide how much am I going to say? I can throw one ball and then throw the other ball appropriately to their pattern start. The first person I threw ball one to, the first person I threw ball two to, as though I can anticipate that they're going to start the pattern once they see me throw the appropriate ball to the first person and that that's going to trigger off the whole cascade of the rest of the pattern. Or I can anticipate that, oh, they need a little bit more instruction than that, a little bit more, and I could just say, okay, same balls, same pattern, here we go. And you just throw them in, say, first ball to the first person that I threw the first one to in the first pattern, second ball to the first person I threw to the second pattern, yeah, get them going. So I could give a little bit more instruction to it. I could say, okay, we're going to do the same thing again. We're just going to do both patterns at the same time. So here we go, first pattern and second pattern. Or I could give a big lengthy conversation, a big explanation of how we're going to do the same first pattern as we did the first time. We're going to do the same second pattern as we did the second time. And we're just going to do them both at the same time, et cetera, et cetera. It can get really wordy or it can be the very simplest part of expecting them to be able to put it together based on the past success. You see the game? Now, two balls are running around the group at the same time. Is the group going to hold it together? Is it going to move each one through? Or is it going to drop a ball and not remember where it goes? Is it going to get confused? And then we get all the different relationships to what are we going to do if it gets confused. If it gets confused because we came up to this next titration up, and now it's confused because the amount of noise around the group is so that... People are forgetting who they threw it to, who they caught it from, and they can't kind of work that out. So do we We just start again with the same two balls again? Or sometimes we have to back it up to the last place we were successful just to doing pattern two by itself again, maybe then doing pattern one by itself again if necessary, then bringing them both together at the same time again. There are these different places that after increasing to that titration, the group might feel the warble of, you know, we got through that. Okay, we can do it again. Or, oh, no, we can't get through this. We keep forgetting it. We have to back up to a place where we can reestablish success. Or, and what we're after, what we're eventually going to get to, is both balls pass through the group, through their individual patterns. And at the end, both balls come back to the originator, in my case, me, when I'm playing this out, and then the entire group feels this big, simultaneous feeling of success. It's like that I can feeling has been growing from the beginning, each round successfully, until it gets to this place where it's like, that feels super satisfying. Now that's more or less the patterns game. 
And that's more or less something that you could see in comedy improv. When I get to play with that in the SE kind of way, when I'm thinking about it from SE, I do a few a few things in there. One is that at each successful titration, I look for a feedback to the success. So at the very beginning, when the pattern's going around and we do something, like we send it, send the ball back around the first pattern and it's successful, I kind of name that out. I'm like, oh, that feels kind of good, huh? And everybody's like, yeah, that feels kind of good. And then I say, okay, well, when it feels good like that, we're going to lean in and we're going to count together. We're going to do like this. We're going to do one, two, three, yeah. We're going to clap. One, two, three, yeah. And so there's this kind of group hug that's going to happen on the successful side of things. The other one, I don't, I don't worry about it. I just, okay, okay, great. So when we hit success, we're going to name one, two, three, yeah. So then when we throw it around the next time and we do usually same first pattern, a third time faster after establishing the one, two, three, yeah. When it goes around faster, then we feed back on this one, two, three, yeah, with a clap. From there, that's just taken all the way through. When we add the second ball, when we do the first ball and the second ball together until we get to a like a crescendo with the one, two, three, yeah, is super satisfying. And it generally comes down when we get to two balls going around following their individual pattern and in closing at the right moment. And they kind of like generally come back together about the same time. And the whole group just feels that sink. And it goes, one, two, three, yeah. And that feedback is like a full-on SE kind of thing. I mean, I don't know. There's, there's different ways to go about doing SE. But if you can get this thing where you feed back on the moments that go right – in your sessions, if you can give some kind of little indicator that starts out small enough that it gives you enough distance and room to grow its significance over time, you can, you can walk with people closer and closer to the successful moments of their experience rather than as some feedback that's misplaced or misdirected or just kind of hmm, maybe absentee could reinforce things getting worse and worse or more and more uncomfortable, we could, we could definitely change where we place our feedback, get ever more accurate about it until we're like tapping on or reflecting on the moments that go, yeah, that feels right. Yeah, that felt good. Yeah, that was more in the right direction. That was more in the direction we want to be going. That was a little bit more spontaneous. That was a little bit more contact. That was a little bit more involuntary. That was a little bit less contrived. That was a little bit less painful. That was a little bit easier breath. That was just a tiny little bit more eye contact. That was slightly easier movement. That was more in the direction we want to be going. When we see those moments... We, you know, there's like a scale. <laughs> can't be uh, like I have done in the past. You can't. You can't just be like the cheerleader, like one, two, three, yeah, go team. Every single time we do something right, we're gonna just yell it out. Go, yeah, team. Woohoo! You're amazing. You are a superstar. You are like the most beautiful being on the planet. You know, it, it can't be just so big <laughs> when it's when it's just the tiniest little thing. But as it grows, if you're willing to give 
your feedback. One, two, three, yeah. One, two, three, yeah. Oh, that feels good. One, two, three, yeah. Oh, my. Oh, wow, we got two balls out here. Look at how successful this group is. One, two, three, yeah. It can, it can build and it can grow and it can like kind of get more of your sincerity behind it when your clients are moving more in the right direction. And that's a, that's a little place that in this game, I kind of pull out that feeling of saying like, we're looking for this feeling, the feeling that when you ask your client to move through an activation sequence, a feeling state to, you know, can I, I know, I know that, that not so comfortable right there, but is it seem possible to let that happen for a moment? And if it's not too uncomfortable, I, I hear it's, I hear it's not comfortable. If it's not too uncomfortable, you got to measure. Is this a question you even want to ask? But you see that, that it can be, it can ride. The, the group here can have the ball and be struggling for a moment. We can just kind of let them work it out. Can you, can you just let this happen for another moment? And we'll just be curious, does it stay exactly the same or does it change in any way? And you might be able to keep people with their experience just that much longer until it then moves through to where it goes, yeah, this is more in the direction we want it to be going. And if we can name out this, yeah, at the right level of that support, well... It's something that that game gives this opportunity to kind of you know, just chat about, play with. Have to give it enough range to grow. One, two, three, yeah. Well, other things that are inside of patterns is that you set up patterns inside of the sessions all the time. Activation sequences, the T-series is a nice pattern. You set up the pattern of a T-series, the T-model, like different people have different ways of going about that, but say one is you start telling a bit of the story, you notice a related activation response to that element of the story or some some kind of feeling or physiological response starts to happen. You can see the person having some tearing coming up as they start to talk about this next part of the story or they get a little more choked up or their heart starts going faster, they start talking faster or you see a an, an implicit hand gesture, some kind of self-protective response, some some like jerk of the head. You see something that makes you go, that is a reaction to telling this part of the story. And so you, you say, okay, I'm going to establish the pattern. I'm going to pause the story. I'm going to say, you know, um, I want to hear the rest of this. And I'm wondering, is it okay if we pause the story just here for a moment? We're going to come right back to it. And I'm just going to ask, just like we were doing before, you'd want to set this all up so you can titrate up to it, so you can, in fact, make this pause happen successfully. And instead of getting sideways and having to start the sequence again, instead it's building up on itself and you can say, I'm just going to pause you right here and ask you, can you turn your attention inside for a moment and just tell me what you become aware of now in order to establish the success of that kind of thing? It's a pattern. It's a pattern that has some kind of really beginning space to it. Like in this game, there's a time when ball number one is racing around the group. And there's a time when ball number two is racing around the group. And there's this other slightly more complicated time when ball one and ball two are racing around the group. And you can't ask in that game a person to be able to, or a group, to suddenly like no two independent patterns and remember them and race these balls around the group at the same time unless you build up the game, unless you build up the pattern. And so inside of the time series, inside of the 
tell some part of the story, pause that story, turn the attention inside, pay attention to the reaction of having told that part of the story right now and kind of becoming engaged with what you feel right now in lieu of continued attention to the story, but being able to come back to the story as per the pattern. Wow, that's complicated. It's like, to do that successfully, that's like throwing around two different, the group throwing around two different balls at the same time inside the patterns game. So inside of this game, while it's a game about the idea that what you're trying to do is establish successful patterns with your clients, and it doesn't necessarily name out all of those patterns, it does name the feeling of success at each level that you're increasing the request upon your client. And if you can, if you can lean into this idea that you're trying to pay attention to what's going in the right direction and trying to enhance that with your attention. And each time you offer something new, trying to figure out how strong or how much you have to say in order to help your clients be successful at the next thing you're asking of them while you're establishing the pattern. And as they do the next part of the pattern successfully, you give them appropriate feedback the right amount of one, two, three, yeah. And when they kind of flutter on the pattern, when they don't succeed on what you're requesting of them, you think about what do I need to do? What do we need to do here in order to get success at this level of the pattern? Rather than try to go on to the more complicated part already, we might need to go back to what does this or that mean? What does this or that pattern look like? That can include simple like reorientation stuff. I'm not going to get into all the, the basics of the practice right now of SE stuff, but you hear me, SC people listening right here. You try to do something, your client fails at doing that thing. You don't want to just do that thing again. <laughs> you, know, you ask, what do you notice now? I'll, I'll hark on that. It's... It, just it's easy for me. It's not like, it's not the only way we go about this, but like, what do you notice now? And, and your client can't answer it. That's part of a pattern. What do you notice now? And they can't answer it. Well, they don't understand the other parts underneath the pattern that would support them. You don't want to just ask them to repeat that failure again. That doesn't have the one, two, three, yeah feeling in it. So as per the patterns game, we would see, oh, we ask a question. What do you notice now? They give us an incomplete answer, an answer that doesn't give us the feeling of, yeah, this is going in the right direction, one, two, three, yeah, keeping it moving forward. In fact, it stalls things or it stops things or it makes everything go sideways. Our next obligation is to go back to somewhere that we could establish some feeling of success, some feeling of one, two, three, yeah, we're going in the right direction get to where we're establishing that success and then move forward from it. And I know for some of you, that would mean that you'd have to go back a whole long way. But that's part of what the game suggests, is that like to move forward, we will have to have successful pieces behind us. Okay, that's a couple learning points inside of the game patterns. Plus, it's fun, gets people moving. It tosses this ball around, makes everybody pay attention, kind of wakes up the senses. Here's this ball flying at you. Oh, that's one more. Let's touch it. Don't throw things at your clients that they're not ready to catch. 
don't throw things at your clients that they're not ready to catch. Like asking for these big grand questions like, what do you notice now? Because it's part of the pattern of doing SE. It is, but you know, they might need to learn that pattern before you can just ask them to participate with it. And throwing a big question at them when they're not going to be able to successfully catch it, it's kind of like throwing something at somebody like a beanbag or something and they're not ready to catch it and you hit them. It's, it's not their fault that they didn't catch it. It's, it's our fault. We need to reassess that. And no shame. Hey, we're just trying to refine and get better at this so we can, you know, <laughs> not hit people when they don't expect it. Whoa. Hey there. This is Twig. It's about halfway through. This is a long, long episode. I told you hour and 45 minutes. We're right about midway here. I think we just passed it. How you doing? Whew. I know. Serious stuff. Games, play, some ideas inside it. All these things inside of our trauma work. So complicated. I know. I know. I'm right there with you. Anyway, there's more to come. If you want to listen now or pick it up later, it's going to be here waiting for you. Okay. Back to it. Bye-bye. Another comedy improv game is called Family Portraits. And normally what that what that looks like is there'll be a photographer position or a, a director, usually the facilitator, and then a group of volunteers, maybe three to five, maybe seven, could be big, I guess, group of volunteers who are going to go up and they're going to have like a family photo, you know, like one of those family photo places. And then the director, photographer, is going to call out or maybe even from the audience, the other the other players or people in the room would be like in an audience group. They could call out like different family structures or family types or personality types or something. In what I like to do with these family photos is make it into a polyvagal learning thing so that I would kind of get a group of three, five, seven people up in the front and we'd say like, okay, like polyvagal family... Dorsal vagal shutdown. Dorsal vagal and sympathetic competition with a fear overlay. You know, it's like, be like anxiety, right? Or we could do social engagement with slight startle response. And then we would play with the different groups taking on those different postures. Working off a similar orientation, I would adapt it and have people get in a long line. I do this in my polyvagal classes too, but I get have everybody get in a long line of from one end of the spectrum being in dorsal vagal, like shutdown kind of stuff, and then all the way at the other end being in ventral vagal, social engagement dominance, and the middle being sympathetic, fight and flight kind of anger, fear, emotions, and, you know, agitated body movements and such. And then I'd have everybody strike a pose, you know, so I'd start up at one end either the dorsal vagal side or the ventral vagal side, and I'd move down and kind of mirror everybody's posture as they grab their pose for wherever they are on the cycle, you know, ventral vagal, sympathetic, or dorsal vagal. And when I'd go down, and then I'd turn it around and have everybody get in a new position along the line and do it again so that nobody has to stay in the same position for too long. It was great, and it was fun, and it gives everybody an opportunity to kind of express and see all of these different body types and behavioral expressions that are going to come out of the polyvagal kind of map of things. Grand, 
That was great. So that's more or less the comedy improv game of family portraits. And one super fun way to do it is to do like a runway for like a model runway and have people come out in different character tones, you know, ventral vagal or sympathetic or dorsal vagal and, and just have them walk the runway and then turn around and come back and just kind of show your walk for these different um, vagal tones, family portraits. Well, real close to that in comedy improv, there's a exquisite game of, it's like a warm up and emotion finding game. I don't know who else uses it, but wow, it's exquisite. So you, what you do is you do a speech from one to 100 using numbers. I call it, this is like the speech of a lifetime. Okay, everybody, we're going we're gonna to split into two lines looking at each other. You're going to have a partner on the opposite line looking at you. Everybody's going to be partnered up all the way down the group, a long line. And maybe, you know, a couple feet between the two of you, little arm space, little space in front of you, because you are going to present, I'm talking now to the speech line, the people who are going to go first. I'm like, you are, you are going to present to your partner looking across at you, you are going to present a speech of a lifetime, like the speech of your lifetime. This is, this is your speech to share <laughs> and to be heard like you have never been heard before, because you are going to explore every single different range of polyvagal possible emotion, like every different range of your being that can come from your dorsal vagal states and the monotone therein to your more sympathetic tone of just getting it done and just pushing it through and knowing what you feel and what is right and what is wrong, all the way over to the fine nuance of the various different prosaic and up and down melodic and less melodic tones found in your ventral vagal side and all of the different curiosity and concern therein, all different types of emotion placed into numbers. Yes, numbers are going to give this speech, this speech of a lifetime in numbers, so you won't have to worry about the words that you use. You will more, you will more focus on the sense of your conveyance. From one to 100, you will speak in numbers and you will infuse it with all of the panoply, this grand sense of essence and opportunity of feeling state found inside of your organism through your expressions as mapped out by the polyvagal theory. You know what they feel like because these, these are true to you. Feel it now. Feel it now. One to 100. One, two, three, four, five. Six, seven, and on and on and on. Now, I've done that before on the podcast, so I'm not going to keep going with it. But you have people give out this speech, one to 100. You have the listener. You know, I, I give this big speech about how you're listening, like it's the biggest deal, and you want to show how you're impacted and hear how you're impacted and feel how you're impacted. And, and you know, it becomes the big thing. People love it. It's a, I love it. It blew my mind when I learned it, and I've never enjoyed it more than when people like kind of embody all their different polyvagal elements. You know, you see people like get in their fight and their insistence and their fear and their apprehension. And you see people drop down in their tone and get very monotone and still and slow. And you see it bounce back up and get very lively and back and forth. And, and it's a great way to practice out and see in other people playfully, 
directedly, not exactly, not exactly the real thing. You know, people are just making it up. But you can see the caricature of what all these different polyvagal presentations look like in terms of people's speech and how they make you feel, which, which is very important and a lot of fun. And there it is, speech from 1 to 100. Now, as an adaptation in the class, I then go on and, and do a thing with gibberish, which I'll let go for now. But it's fun as well. There are so many fun things to do out there. Let's do another game. This other game is called What You Doing Now? The way it works is you get a whole group in the audience. You have two volunteers come up. Maybe it's the facilitator to start with and a volunteer. And you're going to play this game in front of the group called What You Doing Now? And the idea is that one person is going to turn to their partner up in the front and say, What You Doing Now? So I might say, what you doing now, Twig? And me, in Twig form, might start doing something. My mean something out, like I'm mowing the lawn. And I'm going to say, in response, something that is different than what I am doing. Something that looks different, that behaves differently, that is not, could not be represented by the thing that I look like I'm doing. Since I look like I'm mowing the lawn, I might say, I'm waving at the sky, in which case, partner, game player, other person in the game, is going to start waving at the sky, picking up on that phrase, and now their responsibility is to start waving at the sky. And my job is to turn the question around and say, hey, what you doing now? Usually you say their name. Hey, Twig, what you doing now? Twig, Twig 2 in this case, is going to then start, is going to say something other than something that doesn't look like, isn't represented by, doesn't have any association to, this gesture that I'm making that looks like I'm waving my hand at the sky. Oh, I'm walking my dog. And so it goes back and forth. What you doing now? Something that this isn't. I'm popping popcorn. Person starts popping popcorn, the look of it at least. What you doing now? Oh, I'm reading a book. And I'm reading a book. And the game goes back and forth. Now, what we're looking for is not just the humor and what they do, which is fun in itself. But the audience is actively looking for a certain kind of feeling. And the feeling is that the player is going to choke, that they're going to take too much time, that they're not going to come up with something that's not already been said, which is one of the rules. You can't repeat a phrase or an activity that's already been said. Or they're going to say something that looks like the thing that they're doing, so you can't repeat something, it can't actually look associated to what you're doing, and it has to be timely. And if any of those three are violated, the group is going to feel that transgression. Usually it feels it more or less at the same time. And the group is invited to lash out and say, one, two, three, you're out of there. And bring the person who stalled off the stage and a new player comes up and carries on the game starting with, again, what you're doing now. This game is super fun for the mind because your body is actively doing something like climbing a ladder and your mouth is saying out loud, I'm baking bread. It's an interesting challenge and freedom of mind juxtaposition. And it's a great opportunity for SE people to feel this sense of potential failure. It's a fun game. It doesn't hurt whatsoever to be called out, to have the group say, one, two, three, you're out of here, to choke and not come up with the next, you know, suave thing to say. It, it, 
it's easy to fail at this game. It's easy to have played this game a hundred times and not be any better at it than somebody who gets up and plays it the first time. It's just remarkable that you don't have to be attached to losing. It doesn't matter. This game really is free and fun. And it gives the audience a real opportunity to watch what it feels like when things are moving successfully, when the game is going back and forth, and the moment of transgression from that when a person is trending toward not being able to respond fast enough, saying something they've already said, or saying something that it looks like what they're doing when they're going to choke, when they're, quote, one, two, three, you're out of there. That feeling, that feeling that the audience gets at that moment, I think, is very similar to a feeling that SE practitioners want to try to cultivate in their office. And it is the feeling of apprehension that what you have just asked of your client, they are not going to succeed with. And when you feel that feeling that they're going to choke, you want to come in and help them succeed by changing the request in some way to make it slightly smaller and slightly easier for them to succeed at and or, if necessary, absorb the failure so that they don't feel like they're responsible for the failure, but you absorb that you're responsible for requesting something that they weren't able to answer. Most of the time, you kind of want to hide the fact that you're cleaning up your mistake, but you have to see that there are these times when you are asking things that the reason it's not going forward is because you're the one who asked that thing. And the feeling of your client's going to choke, going to take too much time with this, not going to answer spontaneously, not going to answer the new fresh thing, not going to keep the game moving forward, but instead is going to stall out and move into the vortex of, oh, I failed here, or, oh, she keeps asking me strange questions that I can't answer, or what kind of stupid question is that anyway? Like, rather than letting it go there in the moment that you feel, oh, He's going to choke on my question. Oh, he's going to like fail at answering my question. Oh, that was the wrong question to ask. We might have to come in and one, two, three, you're out of there. Come in and do something. Come in and call the attention some way. Come in and say, hey, you know, um, what if somebody else was feeling something like that? What if, what if like an, a different person or another animal were to have a feeling like that? You might have to titrate the request down or you might have to come in. Well, is it more in the upper body or more in the lower body? You might have to come in and do something. There are times that we have to come in and do something. And just before that need takes place, there is often a feeling, I think, that there is a feeling in the room that hangs in the audience for a split second that says, this isn't going to work. And at that moment that this isn't going to work, we want to apprehend what that feels like and come in and do something to change the scene to help our clients be more successful. That game, What You Doing Now, is a way that I kind of bring that out. And then I suggest to people, as I would to you, that when you're in your sessions with people, you listen for, do they just need a little bit more time and they're going to do it? Is their timing a little bit different? Or have we just broken the pattern and this is the feeling of it going wrong? And if this is the feeling of it going wrong, I need to do something to come in and clean up the mess before it actually becomes messy.
another classic comedy improv game that I borrow, adapt, is called Copy Paste. This is typically done as a warm-up in a comedy troupe training. The initial meetings often have these kind of warm-up games. And this copy-paste one will be people stand in a circle and a person, one person, comes out into the middle and presents some kind of gesture, usually aided by a vocalization. Maybe like thrusting the hips out and waving with the opposite hand and saying, hey, y'all, and then moving off and pasting that move onto somebody else on the other side of the circle or somewhere else in the circle, who is then going to enter into the circle and copy that same motion, that same action, as best they can. Ideally, as closely as they can, like whatever they just saw, they're going to try to reproduce that, and they're going to then paste it on to somebody else in the circle. The next person copying it brings it out, paste it on to somebody else, and it continues. And of course, like telephone or like just the fact that we have different physicality and can't do the same motions that everybody else does and that we behave somewhat different, it starts to morph. The idea is to try to keep it as close to original content and movement as it can, and it's going to change. And the idea when you get the next paste, you know, as the next participant, is not to fix what has changed or to harken back to some original form, but to copy what you've just seen and paste it onto the next person, which lends the game a certain kind of vitality to it because it it changes on its own. Well, this copy-paste goes around a few times. People kind of get the form, and you pause that one and start a new one so that you, you know, maybe it plays itself through six, eight, ten times before you do a new pattern. And this is a kind of observation, participation, repeat. It's kind of fun and lively. It can have a lot of momentum for the group. It's it's a great warm-up and instrument, you know, kind of warm-up your instrument, your body instrument kind of thing. And I like to adapt it for SE people by talking about mirroring and the reflections that we make for our clients during sessions. And what what I do with the copy-paste thing is that I, I have the game go off as per normal, as per comedy improv standard, you know, like somebody does something, everybody goes through, repeats it, you know, you know, copy-paste, copy-paste, it changes, and do a new one. And then what I like to do is I like to play with two different concepts around mirroring and repeating of things. One is full-on body mirroring or behavior mirroring. The other is something that I call cutting back the phrase, which I, I think maybe that's on the podcast somewhere. That's definitely in my guide to the SE language, this idea of cutting back the phrase. So I'm just going to separate these two real quick. So inside of the mirroring, the physical mirroring thing, what I have people do is come out and do the phrase and then pay it and have everybody else. Well, I guess I play with it in several different ways. But in any case, I, I play one way or the other with mirroring and I say these things. I'll say them to you here so that they're for you here to hear. I say, when we're in session, it's pretty important for us to think about our mirroring for our clients. Because 
sometimes our clients will say lift their right shoulder and we need to lift our left shoulder in order to mirror them appropriately. If we lift our right shoulder, then it's a cross image for them and it doesn't look like we're mirroring our shoulder to them. And it's important, actually, I don't know if you all know this, but some of you clearly know this, it's important to mirror your clients, not as a parrot, not as a robot, not as a one-to-one relationship of what they express, but in some kind of form, some manner of response, you need to have some mirroring or some reflection of their experience going on in your physicality at times, in some way. And the comedy improv world gives me a little bit of a language for this because one game that they play, and one you could kind of think of it as a adaptation off of copy and, cop, uh, copy and paste, is that they have a game called copy or compliment. And the notion is that like you can strike a pose or take on a form or a shape or behavior, and your partner is to copy that, do the same action, or to complement it, do another action that helps to enhance your chosen action. So like maybe somebody starts to shovel and their partner also starts to shovel. That's copy. Or one person starts to shovel, like miming out the behavior of shoveling, and their partner mimes out picking up a pail and collecting what's being shoveled into the pail. And so it's a compliment. So you can copy or compliment. Well, when we're in sessions, we're often copy or complimenting our clients. Like they lift their fist to show, you know, maybe they're aware of this and maybe they're not. They, you know, they raise their fist and they're mad and they say something about being mad. And we might copy that. We too might raise our fist to try to show a mirror image of their fist probably not one-to-one, probably some amount of it, probably a lesser amount of it, but some kind of reflection that your behavior makes sense here. You can be free to move here. Even I'm free to move here. And there's this kind of subtext of here's what your behavior looks like. It looks totally fine to do that. Go ahead and do that and feel yourself doing that. So there's a copy of it, usually not the same, but a certain kind of amount of it. And there is a compliment position where if somebody raises their fist, we could kind of like roll our head back as if we were impacted by the power, the scale, or the scope of the fist. We could like turn and and look past ourselves as a person like kind of expresses wanting to throw something. We could look as though we were seeing how far that something was thrown. So we could copy it or complement it. We can throw along or we can look and see just how far that throw of something goes. These are mirroring things that amongst everything else that's going on, we're trying to say, hey, your behavior here makes sense. Like what you're doing here is fine. And 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 here's a neurological, hopefully we could say, mirror neuron reflection of your behavior showing you another level of what it looks like, of um, kind of encouraging you to be able to feel that more. There are other parts to mirroring that I go into when I'm showing off this copy-paste thing. But the next piece I want to go to first is, oh, no, let me go ahead and do that. Let me go ahead and do that. Like, as the copy-paste is going around, I keep that game form going, but then I start saying, let's cut some of it back. 
you don't want to mirror people one-on-one. They'll think that you're, well, they'll think you're mirroring them. <laughs> you're trying to keep it somewhat, even in your own body, maybe eventually, somewhat under the radar that you're doing this. And certainly, to the extent that it looks contrived, it's not going to be super helpful. So there's a, a kind of a, a backing off of how much of it you do. And that's closely related to this notion that I have of cutting back the phrase. And we can look at the phrase first here on the podcast. We look at the phrase as like a movement sequence. Like somebody lifts their full fist into the air. If you just squeeze your fist, you're kind of cutting back some of the phrase, some of the reflection, but you're still giving the meaning of raising the fist or the value of the fist or attention to the fist. Same goes like, you know, they um, they tilt their head in some way and you just do a part of it. You like do a little bit of the angle of it. You're just nodding to the truth and the reality and the allowance of that freedom of their movement, but you're not doing all of it. You're kind of cutting back the phrase and it still has as much kind of, if you do it the right timing and not so um, obtrusively, it can have the feeling of like, I'm... I'm lending my head's turn to your head's turn to indicate that our head's turning here is appropriate. But if you do the whole phrase, if you do the whole movement with the hand or the whole turn of the head, if you don't cut it back in some way, particularly if you do that more than twice, it really looks like you are some kind of robot who is matching your client's movements and it's one of the very best ways to get people to not want to move in front of you. So I generally recommend like you, when you're doing mirroring of people's actions and their sequences and stuff, you either you figure out, it's mostly a felt sense thing eventually, but at some level it's a question, am I going to copy or compliment this? Am I going to repeat the same motion or am I going to do some kind of feedback to indicate that I felt that motion or kind of can see the value of that motion or whatnot, and at which degree, how much, how much am I going to cut back the reflection of it? How much reflection are you going to make? Here then, I can move over to this other game that's done, cutting back the phrase. And I think I've talked about this on the podcast, but like I say, it's definitely in my guide to the SE language. It's like a thing that I concentrate on in there. And this notion of cutting back the phrase, I get to play with it in the game copy-paste because the idea behind cutting back the phrase is that when you share a phrase with one of your clients a few times, the same phrase with the same meaning or same collection of meanings and the same purpose as in a pattern like we were talking about before in this episode, you're sharing a pattern Oh, and has you noticed that? Does it increase? Does it decrease? Does it stay the same? Or does it change to something else? You would like to get out of having to repeat that same full pattern every single time you want to ask, pay attention to what happens now and see what happens next. But that's that's like an exquisite way to make it very clear what you're going to do. We're going to watch what's happening now and see if it increases, if it increases its intensity, if it decreases, if it stays the same, or if it changes to something else. Does it increase? Does it decrease? Does it stay the same or change to something else? But if you get that phrase across and your client answers that phrase, says it's getting more, it's getting less, it's 
Yeah, no, it's just staying the same. Oh, it's, you know, gone away and I'm paying attention to something else now. Like they respond to that request, to that question. They're getting some of that awareness of it, some awareness of what that question means. If you ask them again and you get another solid answer, you get two or three times of answering that solid request, then they probably don't need you to ask the entire question anymore. And for you to continue to ask the entire question makes you look like that weird, strange robot, as though you're reading this out of a book, as though you know all the answers, all you have to do is ask the next right question. And that's not exactly true. Like you're just, you're trying to get the flow going here. You're, um, you're practiced and potentially like really exquisite in how you're helping direct people's attention and therefore you're, you're sophisticated, but you're, you're not a robot. You don't want to be a robot. You don't want to just repeat the same phrase over and over. So you might have to get out that sophistication and cut back this phrase. And the way you do that is you land it two or three times. You make it extremely explicit, just like I do in that game of patterns. I decide how explicit am I going to be? This ball, we're going to set this ball out. You remember who sent it to you. You remember who you threw it to. Your hands on your head. Don't, don't let anybody, don't throw the ball at somebody who's not witty, who's not wetty, who's not wetty, who's not ready for it. You want to like name those things out. Okay, here's the question. You feel that. And as you feel that, is it okay to feel that? If it's not too uncomfortable to feel that, can I ask you to feel that and see, does that increase? Does that decrease? Does that stay the same or does it change to something else? At the point when you get that question across and the person can answer that question two or three times and you know they understand that question, you start cutting back the end of that phrase. At least that's something that I recommend that people do, including you. You can get this out of plain copy-paste. I have the people come out, do the full phrase, come out, you know, lift their arms to the sky, pull their hands across their heart and say, oh my goodness, it's a delicious day. And then walk off and paste that to somebody else in the group. And that next person is going to walk off into the group and the request is just to do some smaller version of the same thing, some less movement, some like the arms don't go up as high or the shoulders only go up a little bit and then the hand goes to the heart or the phrase is, oh, it sure is delicious today. It just cuts it back a little bit, but it means the same thing. And that's a way in the game of playing back something that I would encourage practitioners like yourself to do in your sessions. When you get success with a question or a phrase, what do you notice now? Does it increase? Does it decrease? Does it stay the same or change to something else? When you get that kind of, they understand what this means, feedback, then you cut it back and you say something like, right, and how about this time? Does it increase? Does it decrease? Does it stay the same? Or next time through, somebody comes out into the circle and puts their hands straight on their heart and says, oh, it's a delicious day and looks up at the sky. It's smaller and it means the same thing as the original copy paste, but it's less of it. Well, in the example in the office, oh, and how about now? Does it increase? Does it decrease? Does it... And don't you hear right now in your own mind, your mind filling in, does it stay the same or does it change to something else? That's what you're looking for. You're looking for the feeling that your client is finishing the question as you cut back the question into smaller and smaller form to where eventually you can ask, how about now? What happens next? And they fill in, does it increase? Does it decrease? Does it stay the same or does it change to something else? 
There are actually dozens of phrases, I would argue, in your sessions that you say over and over, and many of them can be established on what they mean and then slowly pulled back to becoming a small, perceptive version of themselves that really keep the momentum going forward. Copy-paste is a game that you can kind of play. People come out, they do their full physical motion, and then we start cutting back how much of it we reflect and then still get the feeling like, yeah, that's part of the entire sequence and can indicate the entire sequence. Copy-paste, that was one more game, and it's a good physical one. Another good physical one is maybe my favorite, and it's Slow Motion Ninja Riot. I have this feeling I've shared with Slow Motion Ninja Riot with you before, but maybe that's like a full year ago. Episode 57. Slow Motion Ninja Riot, you have a full group out in a big circle. Everybody gets ready. On the count of three, we're all going to jump back one more grand step from one another and strike a pose as though we are the caricature quintessential ninja. And we have our hands out like blades and we have defensive weapons with our forearms and we have like kind of cutting weapons or damaging, hurting weapons with our feet and with our hands. And we are in a slow motion ninja riot. The fact of the matter is that in this riot, everybody is out to get us and we are out to get everybody else. There's only going to be one of us left standing we have all these kind of defensive moves and cutting moves. We can kick each other or slice each other. We can block and defend from one another. But we have to do it in slow motion. You can make cutting blows. You can make just damn it, you know, wounding cuts. You can have a full-on battle with somebody else, and somebody else might come from out of your point of view, but slice you and you have to die with some flair but you have to do it in slow motion it's a slow motion ninja riot and it's a lot of fun and there's one victor at the end and people kind of flail on the floor and ah it's it, you know it's just a lot of violence it's really it's really bloody and of course somewhere after the start of the game, people feel the danger and the intensity and the worry that they're going to get killed, and they start speeding up. They start speeding up, and then it's no longer a slow-motion ninja riot. It's like this fast ninja riot with everybody trying to run around the room, and no, 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 it can't happen like that. It has to be maintained as a slow-motion ninja riot. Otherwise, somebody might get hurt, you know? And to prove out the point of at least why I play this game, in comedy improv, they, they do this as a kind of a group game and group mind game, other reasons too. But for, for my purposes in playing this with a bunch of XE practitioners, I'm trying to name out this incredible containment of violence that needs to happen as a practitioner. Meaning that as a practitioner, you are going to be yourself all the time and trying to be something else for somebody else. You have to negotiate the fact that you are your own kind of critter. You're faster than most of your clients, or you're slower than some of your clients, or you have a different tone, a different pace, a different set point. You, you have different interests. You, you, you don't want to pay so much attention to that red or that much blue or whatever. You've got your own predispositions. And then 
you have all these clients that are so much different than you. Some of them talk faster, some of them talk slower. They, they're all over the map. And, and there's this remarkable adaptation that you need to make <laughs> in order to not, not completely miss it with people. Not that you have to join and be the same simpatico state with every single client, but you at least have to probably move somewhat closer to everybody than stay just your own state. Maybe in some places the lucky therapist, if they're lucky, I don't know if it would be lucky, but there's maybe somewhere the niche and you get the perfect niche and you work with people just like you and they're just as ramped up or charged as you or they're just as slow and and settled and like grounded as you or whatever the variations might be. I don't know. But at the same time, you bring somebody in who's not from that and you kind of just don't know how to join with them, match with them. Part of the artfulness of this work is getting a lot of range to be able to meet with lots of different people, which often requires a lot of containment about our own state. You know, you work with somebody and they're telling you these horrible stories or these bad things that have happened to them, these things that they've gone through. You care. You're, you're human. You're meant to be impacted. Here you are. You're feeling all of that and you have to contain it. Or there's this scenario where you're you're with one client and everything's going really super great and you spend this hour together and it was really the magic session and it really felt like it flowed through and it just had all this vibration to it. It was, wow, that was amazing. I can't wait to come back next week. Wow, see you then. And you close the door and you open the door for the next client who's in a completely different, rundown, uninterested, super unmotivated state. And you, as the practitioner, have to make this remarkable shift inside of your behavior. You can't be meeting this new client with all this energy from the last client because they don't want to freaking hear it. And you've got to calm yourself down or pull yourself down or ramp yourself down to match some amount of the right tone, enough of the tone, that your next client, who's in this other tone than you were in, will accept you to be close enough to them that you can make some progress. You have to contain or change or strain or do all of this fancy maneuvering at the same time of this really dynamic situation going on, like a riot with all these things and ideas and possibilities passing by, and you have to go in slow motion sometimes. Or sometimes you got to speed up your motion. You know, you got to get a little bit more of the violence up. But the, the big thing inside my game here with Slow Motion Ninja Riot is to notice the remarkable containment that you may often need to do with your own difference in what you want to do considering what the situation needs. You might, in fact, need to ramp yourself up sometimes to meet some of your session demands and some of the people that you're working with. You might need to get yourself into a faster mode when they come. And that might be different than what you want, what you think you want, what you normally feel, how you normally set your pace and your tone. In which case, there might be some violence, some feeling of, ah, why do I have to do this? Why does this have to be like this? Why is this person like this? Why can't it all be different than this? And that violence has to be contained so that it doesn't get leaked onto your clients. Now, contained, I'm not so sure if I mean like just bottling it up because it tends to be that if you bottle such things up, they do leak when you don't expect them to and you talk a little bit haltly or fast or rudely or something. You don't want to do that. So certain amount of giving your own physicality, usually something to do with this difference. But in the game, Slow Motion Ninja Riot, I get to point out all of these moments like 
saying goodbye to one client who's in one phase and tone and bringing in the next client and you adjusting yourself to have all of this intensity and readiness like you're in a riot fighting for your life at the same time as you're the slow, cool cucumber that you were trained to be. Slow motion ninja riot. Which brings us to Tiger Alien Cow. Tiger Alien Cow, it's a classic comedy improv game. You get a group in a circle. They're going to be three different positions called a tiger, an alien, or a cow. The facilitator is going to call out on the count of three. Choose your animal. You're a tiger, an alien, or a cow. I don't know if those are all animals. Anyway, you choose your character, tiger, alien, or a cow. On the count of three, one, two, three. And now everybody in the group looking forward into the center of the group is going to present as a tiger. And they're going to kind of like growl out with their hands or an alien with like little whiskers above their head, you know, little antennae or a cow with their hooves out in front of them, the moo sound. So you got these three positions, tiger, alien, cow, moo. And everybody's got like facial positions and, you know, where you put your hands to go along with each of these. The idea is that everybody on the count of three chooses their position, does their action, leaning out into the circle, and then pulling back to the edge of the circle again, back to neutral. Then the facilitator is going to call back out, okay, one, two, three, and you're all going to reach back out again and choose tiger, alien, or cow. But the thing here is that you're going to adjust to the majority feel or what you saw was the majority number of critters in the last one, a tiger, alien, or cow. Did you see more tigers last time or more aliens or more cows? If you saw one of those, even if they're different than what you wanted to be, you're going to adjust yourself and become a tiger, an alien, or a cow as per your observation of last time. And so you kind of like reach out and pull back and you reach out and you pull back as a group. One, two, three, tiger, alien, cow. One, two, three, tiger, alien, cow. And what the game is, is to try to get the whole group to be the same critter pretty much as fast as possible, which I think we really need to give a shout out to all of our Japanese SE practitioner friends, because when I was over there and did a polyvagal class where we employed this, there were like 52 people in Tokyo who all got to the same critter in the same first time. I don't know how that happened. But there you go. That's the goal. You get to the same critter at the same time. Now, usually it has to go through several iterations where you have to see in a quick second what the presentation of the group is moving toward, and you need to pull back and let yourself change to that for the next time. And it's fun. And played two or three times, it kind of gets the group all together and and doing fun stuff. For our SE purpose, it's a wonderful learning representation of the simple fact that you cannot continue to expect your clients to be the ones to change when you're the one who's been educated on the nature of the change process. Asking clients to feel something when they keep telling you they can't feel it. Name something that they don't know how to name. See something when they're not interested not tell you the story when they're interested in telling you the story, like asking them to continue to do something different when it's you. You're the one who's all informed. You're the one who's aware of just how hard it is for people to change. And you're the professional who's ready, ready to take that step to change. So 
they're acting like an alien, you need to become more alien. They're being more like a cow, you need to get more like a cow. You can't just want everybody to be a tiger all the time. I want everybody to be a tiger. I want you to be a tiger. I want everybody to get to feeling like a tiger. But sometimes when folks are being like an alien and you're trying to get them to be like a tiger, the only reason they're staying like an alien is because you're not being an alien with them. You're expecting them to be a tiger too soon. So there are times in our sessions that when we do something and we see it didn't work, we need to change our behavior. We need to give more space before the next question. We need to ask another question that makes it easier to answer it by giving more examples inside the question so it's easier for people to understand what the question means. Or we need to make the question smaller by giving a this or a that option so it's only a choice between two options rather than an open question that they don't really know what to do with. We need to change our behavior. And Tiger, Alien, Cow is a cool, fun game to just name that out. You get out here in the group and you see the group do one thing, you got to change and go toward that so that you can start to steer things. At least that's how I name it out in that game, in that class. Okay, that was nine. I think that was nine. The last one I'll leave you with is that when I'm closing this these days, uh, there's a lovely comedy improv thing that, um, I don't know, probably done elsewhere too, but I, I just love this one. And it's, it's you get the whole group to come around and count to 20 as a group without knowing who's going to say the next number and without anybody, without two people, saying the same number at the same time. And if two people do say the same number at the same time, then you just start back at the beginning again. So you get one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Like you hit, everybody's like getting in there, don't don't know who, when they're gonna say it, but it's like popcorn. Like say the next one, but then if anybody says the same number, two people say the same number at the same time, you just start back at one. And the goal is to get to twenty in this kind of group mind, group field kind of way. And while it's not in the comedy side of things, it's not in the fun side of things, and yeah, we could probably pull out all kinds of coherence metaphors inside of SE, it just feels really nice when the group gets to 20. You get to say, one, two, three, yeah. And with that, my friends, I will bid you adieu and wish you very well out there. Okay, bye-bye now. So here's a tracking twig moment for episode 90. I did used to do this workshop, practicing our lines, and I would happily do it again. I am not going to design and self-promote it anymore, kind of create the venues for it and put it all together from afar. I'll show up to any invitation that suits the bill to make it all work. Anybody who wants to help make that happen can check out my website, liberationispossible.org, and in the main menu under for practitioners or for therapists, there's a section there on practicing our lines. And in there, there's kind of insight on how to help make it happen. If you're interested, if somebody's interested, it'll happen. And maybe it'll happen near you. If not, there there really was like eight, ten of the games that I play in there. Pretty much 
in a form that I think you could get a small group together and go play them. And I'd encourage it. And I hope you have a really great time doing so. Okay, that's that.